Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Washington Wellness Podcast, where we talk about all things wellness, including health, fitness, and well-being to help improve your quality of life. I'm your host, Dr. Jamal Jackson, physical therapist and entrepreneur. This podcast is for general information only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician or other qualified health provider regarding any health conditions or concerns. Let's get started with today's episode. Today, I'm here with Courtney Marie Simpson. Courtney, how are you? Good, good. Thank you. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you for being here. Just a little bit about Courtney. Courtney Marie Simpson is a licensed graduate professional counselor, writer, actress, and avid reader. Born in Washington, D.C. and raised in PG County, Maryland, she receives her undergraduate degree in psychology at the University of Maryland College Park, followed by a master's in clinical mental health counseling. Courtney's journey has led her everywhere from working in crisis centers to working with youth in D.C. schools, but the constant for her has always been that the path to healing starts from within, that when we are able to accept and be accepted for ourselves and our power, are we then able to fulfill our truest purpose? Courtney, that's your bio, but do you mind sharing just a little bit more about your background? Sure. So um was raised in PG County, specifically Bowie. So my mom and dad, you know, they're from this area and I have two younger sisters. Um, I come from a bicultural family. So my mom is black African-American and my dad is Piscataway, Kanoi, Native American. And so I sort of have those two cultures blending and, you know, my dad's tribe is indigenous to Maryland. So it was interesting growing up with sort of like that understanding of both my heritages. And, you know, I grew up in PG, so it's one of, you know, the wealthiest black counties in the United States. And so I feel like just having that environment around me of, you know, black excellence and, you know, just seeing people, black people just thriving and doing well, but also having this pride in themselves definitely helped to round me out as a black woman. And then, you know, definitely growing up just seeing the different disparities, you know, between DC and certain neighborhoods and PG. Yeah. And I think, you know, just also being from PG County, I mean, that's one of the things where you don't think about it too often or recognize how special it is. Just mm-hmm. kind of the culture we have in this area is not very common. So that kind of leads us right into today's topic, racism, police brutality, and mental health. Um, we're going to start with the former and then kind of work our way through and tie it all together with mental health. And so, Courtney, the very first thing that I wanted to ask you, um, mm-hmm. just a personal story, when was your very first experience with the racism? I feel like a lot of my experiences growing up were sort of more so prejudiced than it was like at least from what I can remember, like overt racism, just because of the area we were in. It was never like, you know, slurs or like really outwardly, I can identify as it being racist. Um, but I do recall, um, I went to a Roman Catholic private school in PG. And so even though there were like, it was like sort of like a mixed population, most of the teachers were white. Um, most of the, like the priests and the sisters there were white. And so, you know, we would have to do standardized testing. And of course, back in the day, you know, they had those straight, like white, black, African, American, Indian, Alaskan, and then, you know, other. And so, you know, at the time, that was when I was really coming into learning about all of my different, like, 
cultures. And so I was really stressed at this one part. We're supposed to be like filling in bubbles and like, you know, moving on so we can go into standard assessment. And I was stuck on this race box. And my teacher saw that I was like lagging on filling out my bubbles. So she was like, you know, Courtney, what's going on? I said, I don't know which box to pick. Um, it says I can only choose one. But I explained to her, you know, my dad's Native American. His box is here. My mom is Black. Her box is here. And I said, you know, I was really like conflicted by it because I felt like if I was going to choose one or the other, I would be disowning or like snubbing the other side of me. And so my teacher, I can't even remember her face or name, but I just remember her tone. It was just very condescending, like, well, you look black, so just choose it. Wow. Because we have to move on. And, you know, I, I couldn't have been more than like nine or 10. And so I was like stuck on the, like, she was just like, just choose it. Like, you look black, this is what you are. And it's not the fact that, I was denying that I was black. It was the fact her level of insensitivity towards my struggle, a little bit my towards my confusion at that age, especially now that I work with kids. It's like, like if I was like an adult fly on the wall, I probably would have been like, girl, who are you talking to? Like, no. Um, so that was one time when I was younger. But um, more recently in College Park, actually in school, um, it was me and two of my friends in a car and we were coming out of like, you remember the view, like it was like the apartments oh, yeah. type of situation. And so I had, I didn't turn my headlights all the way on. I just had like my fog lights on. So I still had light, but I just didn't realize they weren't all the way on. So uh, we got pulled over by the college park, you know, police. And, you know, just his tone was flashlights on immediately. He was like, you know, you didn't have your lights turned all the way on. You had fog lights on. I was like, okay. He was like, are you drinking? I said, well, no, I'm not drinking. He's like, well, it looked like you guys were drinking. We were following you for a while. It's like, you know how everyone is. It's like a two light, like lane situation. Right. Like, sir, like, was I swear everyone? Like, no, like, there's nowhere for me to go. There's only the street and a wall. So he pretty much was like, okay, turn the car off, get out of the car. Gave me no sort of explanation. And at this time, you know, I wasn't very like, this is like one of my first times getting ever approached by like a cop. So I was just like, okay all right, he told me to get out of the car, I'm getting out of the car. And then he told my friends to get out of the car and literally they ransacked my car. Like I'm talking, took everything out, glove compartments, like was like pulling, like instead of like, I don't know, taking my seats off. Like it was like crazy, like how they were like maneuvering my car, like just throwing everything everywhere, opened up the trunk, threw everything out on, onto the street that was in my trunk, including the spare tire. Like they were in every crevice of my car. And I'm like freaking out because I'm like, what's happening? Like, why is this happening? Like my girlfriend left her purse in the car. They're dumping her purse out. She has epilepsy. So she had her medication on her. They were like, what are these drugs here? They had her friend was on the curb. He's a black male sitting there. Like they like took the soda he had in his hand. They were like dumping it out and smelling it. And they had me do a sobriety test. Like I'm like shooken up. Like I'm just like, oh my God, I've never had this happen to me before. And it's a white cop and a black cop. So then while the white cop is like tearing my car apart, throwing all my belongings, like they're just rolling into the street, like whatever. Um, the black cop is like giving me a sobriety test. So I never have done one before. So he's like, stand here and look at this pen cap. And it's dark. There's no light. And I asked him, I was like, um, can I get my glasses out of the car? And he said, oh, you're driving without your glasses. You know, I can take you in for that. That's an offense. And I was like, sir, I'm literally going from down the street, down the street. I didn't think that I would need it. And this is a pen cap that I'm following in the dark. No, zero Fs given. 
So he's giving me this whole, like, literally writing things in cursive in the air and expecting my eyes to follow it. And after that, they were like, okay, you can go. No explanation, no nothing. Like, threw all my crap back in the trunk and then just, like, he was really, like, threatening to take me to jail for not wearing my glasses. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Uh, yeah. Whew. Even just talking about it now, like, I'm, like, holding Marcos, like, <sighs> like, even, and that's, like, years ago. Like, I was a freshman. Yeah, I was going to say, that kind of, you know, foreshadows what we're going to get into, like, a little bit as far as the mental health piece. How, you know, mm-hmm. this happened, you know, years ago. We can still kind of remember that vividly to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I mean, that very first experience was back when I was 12 years old. And I remember, mm-hmm. you know, so clearly, um, me and two of my friends, we went to this, like, kind of celebration, this town day, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in an area that was really nice, like a park. Um, and everyone was kind of in one area, like by the playground, you know, by the grills, all that kind of stuff. But then at the bottom of the hill, there was a track. And so me and my two friends, we just decided, hey, you know, let's go walk around the track just to do it one time and come back. Mm-hmm. So we did that. We go down there, we start walking, everything's fine. But then out of nowhere, you know, some police show up. And then they say to us that they were kind of, you know, informed or, you know, tipped off that we were over there doing drugs. Oh, wow. At 12 years old. Um, and so, of course, you know, we didn't have any drugs on us, anything like that. But they made us leave the track and go up, to, go up against the fence where they kind of searched us just to make sure. And then after that, you know, same thing, you know, all they said was someone said you had this, you guys were doing this, so we had to come check. They leave. I mean, we're done with the town day at that point. I mean, we're just completely taken out of the out of the movie mm-hmm. to celebrate. Um, and one thing I really remember is walking back towards my friend's house. We stopped just shy of it and kind of sat down on the curb and just like talked about what happened. I mean, we were all confused. We didn't you know, know how to put in the words. It was hard to believe. But again, that's back when I was 12. I mean, that's yeah, almost two decades ago, but I still remember it so vividly. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to talk about next, um, why do you believe that, especially in this day and age, some people might have difficulty with talking about race? I think it's honestly because it's so... It's just like anything else that people have difficulty if you think about talking about what their family about. So finances, mm-hmm. right? Trauma, right? Race. These are conversations that I feel like we don't completely understand. And we also know that there's some sort of responsibility to be taken by some party. And in avoidance of that responsibility, in avoidance of acknowledging that there was wrongdoing done, or that there could have been other ways to handle certain things or that it was in and of itself wrong. You know, we, when we don't understand something, we tend to first become defensive about it, mm-hmm. which is what we're saying. We see defense, right? And then that defense leads to avoidance. So we avoid the conversation completely, right? And that avoidance eventually grows to fear. Like we fear other races. We fear talking about money or we fear money problems or we fear talking about family trauma and things like that because of what it might bring out. And then that fear turns to hate and it just continues the cycle of this denial of that it's even there, that it's present and that someone needs to be held accountable or some people need to take action in order for it to resolve itself. And, you know, no one likes to feel guilty or feel that they have had their experience, you know, trivialized or what have you. But I think in racism, it's so insidious 
you know, just like, you know, if we're looking at domestic violence, like it's so insidious that in some ways perpetrators believe that they were not in the wrong or their actions were justified in the doing, in the wrongdoing. And so that's, that's where I come from and seeing that why it's so difficult because people really don't understand it and they don't want to take responsibility for it. Yeah. I mean, those are all good points. Um, I think, you know, even though it is something that's not, you know, comfortable for some people, it's mm-hmm. imperative to have these conversations because how can you begin to, you know, solve anything if you don't talk about the problem? Most definitely. I don't know if you've, uh, if you've seen it, but there's this uh, former NFL player. He has a series on YouTube called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. It mm. just started in June, um, early June. It's been really good. Just trying to have some dialogue to help people understand and kind of move forward together. Right. That's interesting. I haven't, I haven't seen that. I have to check that out for sure. Another thing that I'm seeing a lot in social media these days is that this idea that black women are saying they don't really feel supported or protected by black men. I was going to ask you, have you heard that same thing from some of your friends or have you seen the same thing? And if so, um, what do you think might be kind of going on there? I, I would definitely, absolutely. And, and I'm not saying in every context, just because I've also been privileged to have a lot of, you know, very supportive, very, you know, educated, driven, loving Black men around me, you know, yourself included, like just the experience that I've had in my journey that I'm so thankful for is that as the older I've gotten, I've had the opportunity to meet people from all walks of life. And I think just simply because, you know, the men that I surround myself with also surround themselves with positive, educated, you know, well-rounded, grounded, you know, courageous Black women that there's no struggle to understand you know, each other for the most part. Um, but, you know, just simply, I mean, just look at the culture. I feel like, you know, growing up before I was, you know, very, you know, where I am now confident in myself as a Black woman, you know, I often felt pitted against other Black women by Black men, right? You know, because I am light-skinned, because, you know, my hair is curlier, you know, they would often make comments, you know, you know, I prefer girls like you. I like your color. Mm. And I'm like, okay, or, you know, you have that good hair, you know, you'll, you'll have nice babies, or you know what, like, you the type that, you know, we can wife and this, that, and third, bring home the moms, that type of thing. Like, just subtle things like that, that they're thinking would be a compliment, but makes me feel even more uncomfortable, because then, you know, I have family members who are brown skin or dark women. I have you know, friends, you know, who I love dearly. And if I was to ever hear anybody speak in this way about them, that wasn't, I guess, a male, I would jump at it, but I didn't know how to respond if it was given in a compliment. You know, at that age, I just didn't really understand why. And then just, you know, the objectification of women, you know, in our, you know, we have a great history in music and literature and film you know as a black people just seeing how far we've come but there's also just still that lack of you know do you see me as a person like do you value me and i and i came across this a snippet of a podcast before where a black man was saying you know black men need to start valuing women black women as who they are and not what we can give them or do for them I feel like, you know, that's the only time sometimes where we're appreciated is when we're supporting a black man or we're, you know, 
in a role that a black man says, you know, like in that mom role, right? Or we're in that sister role, you know, or that person who's fighting for like, you know, right? Like, what can you do for me? What are you bringing to the table? But I've never really heard, you know, even with some of my close guy friends, like conversations of what they are bringing to the women, what they are willing to provide, what they are willing to give of themselves, you know? It's sort of like, you know, I'm trying to find a one, she needs to compliment me. This whole list of conditions almost mm. for a black woman that I don't really hear in terms of if, they're ha- if they happen to be talking about a woman in a different ethnic category, you know what I mean? And so it, it's like little things like that. And even just, you know, in our culture, you know, I feel like there's a lot of times where even black women, older black women will demonize young black girls over black boys. Like you can't, like I had to tell my son he can't hang around her cause she's fast or, you know, these black girls, these little things out here are going to get him in trouble, you know, just instead of, or like, you know, they'll have their daughters cooking and cleaning and doing laundry and doing all the house stuff at the age of like 10 and 12 and the boys just out here doing whatever boys will be boys. Oh, that's my baby. And all this other stuff. Whereas we tend to raise the girls because we're seen as like, I guess the backbone, but then, you know, they love, we always say they raise the daughters, but they love the sons. Mm. And, you know, it's sort of like this thing where it's like, I don't know, sometimes like baby fad, you know, in a way. And so that can kind of, I think, you know, even from just like walking down the street, cat calling and hey girl what's up and you know if it's not reciprocated or even if you try to do it in a a nice way like I've done like no thank you or sorry I gotta go you know try to not come off defensive or irritated you know I've still been called a b I've still been called stuck up like oh you think you too good to sit here and talk to me like it's just very aggressive like if I'm not trying to have a conversation or if I'm not trying to entertain you then it's seen as a problem if I'm not trying to give you my time or my energy or whatever, or if I'm just not interested because I have a husband, like it's not seen as that way. It's like, if we're not down for them, then we just ain't nothing type of thing. So I've seen it. I've seen a little bit every way, but luckily, thankfully I have not been like, I haven't experienced much, but I have had friends, you know, be disrespected on the utmost of levels. And even in some of my previous relationships, just being disrespected from, top to bottom like because I'm being vocal being me being whatever and whether that has something to do with me being a black woman like would my experience have been different if I was another color I don't know but you know it does happen and the conversation sometimes is just not not necessarily positive as the years are going on as we as black women I feel like are speaking out more for ourselves and are showing ourselves and each other more love I see changes in the black men within the community shifting to like understanding and respecting us more. I would say over like the past like 10 years, I've definitely seen like a more appreciation for black women than I ever have in my life growing up. And this isn't something that's really, you know, brand new either. Even going back like Malcolm X, he's been, you know, quoted as saying, and I'm going to paraphrase here, like the most, you know, neglected, disrespected and unprotected person in America is the black woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sad that, you know, so many black women, you know, today do feel that way. Um, or I should say not that they feel that way, but that there is a kind of cause for them to feel that way. 
And I think the only way we can, you know, go about fixing that is again, just to have conversations like this. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, I have seen it where, you know, some people will say, Hey, you know, that hasn't been my experience or I don't see that happening. But that kind of goes back to this whole, uh, you know, black lives matter movement, just because it doesn't happen to you. It doesn't mean exactly. you just go out there and say all lives matter. And of course, mm-hmm. black lives matter too. So to kind of bring that back to a black women, this is an issue that we need to bring attention to. And so right. again, we can start to do that just by having conversations just like these. Mm-hmm. Even if you're not one that's affected, like if you see it happening, you know, like I've often checked a couple of my guy friends or even like, you know, my husband fully my husband, you know, I'm like, like, what was that comment? What was, what was that said? You know, and it might be done in a joking manner, but I'm like, no, that's, I think it's just time, you know, for men to check each other. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, sometimes you think about, you know, like the bro code, that might be holding some people back. Oh, but well, at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, like respect, you know, honor, doing what's right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and and it's just, you know, it it starts, I feel like it definitely starts at home and it starts in the community. Like, you know, people learn from what they see, from what they hear, right? You know, dads can tell their sons you know treat your woman like a queen but if you don't treat mom like a queen i'm not going to treat her i'm not going to treat anybody i'm messing with like one you know people exactly. can be very full of talk right. but they don't practice what they preach and that's you know uh, you know i say oh you know rape is wrong you know sexual harassment is wrong but you know if you in a club and your friend slaps some girl he doesn't know on the behind and you're like oh, oh oh he got her he got her and you're like egging him on it's like what was that? Or like, oh, she probably wanted it or, oh, it's like, that's her fault. You know, like just certain things like that in our, in our, not just in black culture, but just in our society in general, just with black women, we're always seen as, you know, more adult-like than we actually are. We're seen as, you know, oh, she's aggressive. Oh, she's a black woman. So she doesn't get hurt as easy. Like she can take more of what I have to give, whether it's mostly in a negative, like, you know whether it's cheating or cursing at fighting you know it's always just we're we've been through so much but we're still expected to go through more and that's the that's the tragedy in itself and i think you know some takeaways that black men can take away from this when they're listening to it is you know one if you see something going on speak up two just you know be able to support if there's like a cause or some kind of you know rally or event show up, support, be present, donate, all those sorts of things. Something I noticed, and this just may just be just me, when Ahmaud Arbery was killed, that was kind of like a big deal on social media. Um, mm-hmm. George Floyd, obviously a huge deal, started all these protests. Breonna Taylor, the cares were there definitely and they still are, but just to me it didn't seem like as much as you know some of the men, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate. Have you kind of noticed that as well with that? I, I have. I have, like, even when it was, you know, Sandra Bland, um, you know, it was just like, it didn't have as much, it did have heat for a little bit, but then it quickly died down. Right. And, you know, as many of, you know, unfortunately the deaths, they would have a lot of heat at the moment, maybe for a month, maybe for two, but it would never be to this extent. And it's just, you know, looking at just in general, the, the momentum that we have now, like Black Lives Matter was founded by Black women. The Me Too movement was founded by a black woman. Like a lot of these movements that are that are changing the way we look at things that are being implemented are started by black women. Like, you know, even in like school systems, like in Black History Month, like who do you hear about the most? 
you know, it's the black men in the movement. But if you want to learn about the black women, that's sort of like extracurricular, you know, you go find that out on your own type of thing. And so, and that just comes from having, you know, my mom always told me you have to work four times as hard, right? Because not only are you black, but you're also a woman. And so it's like, you have to move four steps ahead. Like there's the white men, white women, black men, then you. So everything you do has to surpass that. And so it's it's also just like that it's 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 almost like we're not seen as going through as much because we don't get as much airtime. Like it's 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 weird. It's I definitely I definitely see the react the response is greater when it's a young black boy or a black man than it is to a young black girl or you know black women. Like in DC, when we had this like plague and we're still going on where it's like human trafficking and all these young black girls are going missing. Well, not just black, but like, you know, black and Hispanic, but it's like just a surge of like missing young black girls like popping up all over and there's no discussion about that. And that happened like a few years ago. And so it's just like, I don't know what that is. I don't think what we're realizing is the black girls and the black women of today will become those mothers, will become those grandmothers right. that you guys value so much. But where is the value now when when our like when our protection is most needed? I feel like. Mm. Yeah, I mean, no, definitely all good points. And then again, hopefully, you know, when people listen to this, it'll just kind of spark some conversations, be food for thought, and then hopefully come up with constructive action to take on it. Yeah, for sure. Um, the next thing that I wanted to kind of get into, and I know, you know, neither one of us have any kind of degrees in, you know, African American studies or politics or anything <laughs> like that. We just have, you know, some multiple decades of experience of being black people in America. Mm-hmm. What do you think may be a potential solution to racism in this country? So I think there's not just one way, because when you have something that's systematic, it affects multiple systems. And I feel like too often we focus on the symptoms or the manifestations of racism and not getting to the root. Like that would be as if, you know, you go into the doctor and you're saying, you know, I'm feeling this pain all over my body. You know, it's, it started here and now it's here, but they don't give you any sort of test or examinations. They don't look inside to see what's really going on. And we know that the reason why these systems perpetuate and why they're so hard to dismantle is because there is a belief system that that is sort of supporting it it's not just you know certain laws and things but there's a belief that is still carrying those laws that that justify why it's there and so i think the first thing is to really go to the root of it in every single system that we have so if it, we're looking at the educational system it's not just that there's a disparity, you know, with, you know, education in Black communities, but it's what they're being taught as well. It's what everyone's being taught. So if there needs to be a reconstruction of the educational system, take all the textbooks off the shelf and rewrite it. Put new books there. Okay. The teachers aren't qualified. Take them out, requalify them, right? The same thing that we're seeing with the police and the justice system now. Like you're seeing, not only are we calling for action to be taken against those who've committed crimes, but we're asking for entire reform, right? No longer will we incentivize cops to make arrests. 
no longer can you just, you know, it shouldn't be that you can just become a cop in six months, licensed to kill, and that be the end-all be-all. Like, we're looking at reforming the way that they are trained, you know, the way that they are put into communities, who responds to what calls. You know, we're looking at putting more mental health into schools and establishments because we're realizing that that has been too long neglected, right? Because that's what racism really is, in my opinion. It is a it is a illness that has seeped into America's consciousness itself. And it needs to be rooted out through constant treatment, through different methods, and just taking it to the root of things. It's not just simply a quick fix or a Band-Aid or a carrot, like, here, we'll give you this for that. Like, no. Okay, shoot. If it's the Constitution, that's a problem. Maybe we need to rewrite the Constitution. How about that? Like, yeah, it might seem extreme to some people, but you can't have a constitution that was written while I was a slave and expected to still work for me. And I'm a, a free, educated Black person of, you know, the 21st century, right? It's, it doesn't work. And so I feel like if, you know, businesses and companies and, you know, curriculums can be updated, so can the way our government works. So can certain establishments be reevaluated and, you know, reprogrammed? And I think that's the biggest key is, realizing that it's not just, you know, a simple change in rules. It's not just switching out one president for another. It's completely going into the core of what is sustaining these systems and changing them to include everyone, to be beneficial for everyone. And I think that's the root. And, it's, and it starts pretty much with education. Education, but it also means taking away certain powers that infringe upon our liberties so you cannot shoot me like you're paid to protect and serve so that is what you do protect and serve if i'm not a threat then you cannot harm me and it's just certain things like that certain concepts that we have neglected like it's good on paper but we don't practice it right 13th amendment there shouldn't be any reason why you're able to get free labor off of me in a prison system like it doesn't make any sense i hope that answers the question <laughs> But uh, <laughs> but that's how I see it. Just it it needs to go to the root. It can't just be fixing the system, the symptoms. It has to go to the core belief that we have in this country, that one denial that there is racism, and that racism can somehow benefit everyone as long as it's worded right. Yeah, I think you made a really great point. Um, I love how you said it's not just about the symptoms. You know, this isn't something we can just kind of put a band aid on and expect to you know change overnight. Mm -hmm. um, like you said, it's systemic. It's a process that's going to have to really go down to the core of, you know, how different organizations and departments are structured. And from mm -hmm. there, that's when the real change can happen. I think these processes are great because it's all about getting the awareness and attention. Um, but from there, you have to take that attention and focus that into action. Right. I, I, I came across this quote a couple weeks ago, you know, the way to create change is not by, you know, fighting the old, but building the new. You know what? I can't, I can't change everyone's mind or perspective on racism. But what I can do is I can change who's in this position of power. Every, not just police, but every you know leader, whether it be a senator or governor, needs to take an implicit bias test. They all need to be trained in mental health and trauma. They all need to take cultural, you know, classes on you know just the things, small things that I had to do to become a therapist to be able to work with anyone. I had to take training on trauma. I had to learn about different cultures and the way they process therapy and the way they speak and the way they talk and the way they communicate. I had to learn that I can't, you know, impose how I'm feeling on anyone else. You know, I had to be that like receiver in a way. 
you know, whoever I'm working with, whether it's from somebody with substance abuse, a child or someone who's a pedophile, like I had to do my job. And I feel like that's the issue that we put a lot of these people in power who they themselves suffer from this illness, this belief that they are inherently better than than anyone else and that their will is law, which it has been for so long. And so if they if they don't do the work to change it, then we have to put someone else who's more suited to that position there. And I mean, you continue to make great points. I agree. <laughs> Thank you. And before we uh, move on to the mental health section, I just kind of want to take a moment to say the names of some people who should be kind of remembered at this time, um, specifically kind of this moment in history. Rashard Brooks, David McAtee, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Michael Lorenzo Dean, Botham John, Terrence Crutcher, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Freddie Gray, Walter Scott, Michael Brown, John Crawford III, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Emmett Till, George Stinney Jr. Napoleon Salau, Brianna Taylor, Tatiana Jefferson, Dominique Clayton, Pamela Turner, Alteria Woods, Sandra Bland, Janet Wilson, Betty Jones, India Kager, Alexia Christian, Maya Hall, Natasha McKenna, Tanisha Anderson, Michelle Crusoe, Rhea Milton, Dominique Remy Fells. And now let's transition into mental health. How common would you say are mental health conditions in America? I would say, well, in terms of like diagnoses and actual like disorders, I don't really know on that point. Like I haven't done that research on that, but I would say mental health conditions in terms of, you know, people suffering from mental health issues, I would say it's very prevalent. Um, it, it's not so much the diagnosis, but just think of it that, you know, we all may not have in our lifetime experience what it's like to have cancer, what it's like to have diabetes or what it's like to have, you know, HIV or AIDS, but we all know what it's like to be sick or unwell. And so that's where I view it as, you know, it's very prevalent in that we have all dealt with at some point, whether we recognize it or not. And so just kind of piggyback off of that, what would you say are some of the uh, more prevalent kind of specific conditions, if you had to name a few, that you see quite often? Well, in my experience, it's usually um, depression, uh, anxiety. Um, and of course, there's subcategory diagnosis within those uh, categories and also trauma-related uh, conditions as well. So that that's, in my experience, that's the most that I've dealt with in terms of both adults and children. It's usually one of those three. And then as far as, you know, uh, conditions that can kind of alter someone's mental health or maybe impact the way they're, you know, thinking about things, what kind of factors can have an influence on your mental health? Uh, everything. I, you know, I explain it like this, like there's nothing that your mind is not a part of when you're existing as a living being. And there's nothing that cannot not affect your mental health. So down to, you know, your hygiene, your physicality, you know, whether you're able or disabled, um, whether you're, um, you know, where you live, your experience, where you grow up, your family, your relationships, 
you know, how active are you, you know, what you read, what you watch, uh, you know, even down to, like I say, like, you know, a rotten tooth, if unchecked, could lead to a mental condition, right? And so it's, it's all these little things, like your brain in and of itself is an organ, but it controls everything else. It perceives everything else. So everything that you're receiving and everything that you experience can affect your mental health and your mental wellness. Yeah, and that's one reason why I really wanted to talk about this subject. Um, just as far as, you know, health overall, it's not just about making sure your blood pressure is right or, you know, walking every day. Just mm-hmm. to kind of take care of yourself in what I believe in a holistic manner, just to make sure you are your best self. Mm-hmm. In all aspects. And so, yeah, I feel like the, the mind is the same way. You know, it's, if I'm not, if something's off in anywhere else, if I'm eating poorly or if I'm not getting enough exercise or enough sleep or if I'm stressed at my job or from a really bad relationship or, you know, my family's doing poorly or if I'm, you know, Every day I worry about somebody racially profiling me and harassing me. That in and of itself, your mind is attuned to that. Your mind is constantly trying to prepare and trying to plan and keep you safe. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely everything. (laughs) Yeah, and towards the end there, you kind of touched on how racism and prejudice can have an impact on your mental health. Do you have any specific examples of how that may kind of affect some people? Yeah, so, and just to be clear, racism affects everyone's mental health on both sides. Like I said before, racism in and of itself, I see it as an illness, you know, a very skewed perception of reality as it stands. And so not only do the people who believe and support racism have, you know, an illness that needs to be checked, those who are often victimized and who are survivors and, you know, go through racism are impacted negatively by it. And, you know, I try to put it in a context, you know, where everybody can understand just taking, you know, race out of the picture. Um, if we take the example of a POW, right, or a prisoner of war, when you are completely separated from anyone who wishes you well, you're put into a situation where you are, you know, your life is constantly threatened or you're constantly harmed or threatened with harm. You know, if you're put in a position of, you know, abuse, if you're, you know, starved in any way, if you're forbidden to speak your language, if you can no longer be called by your name, if you are, you know, put into this situation where you are totally isolated, right? If you're totally put into this experience to where you are constantly traumatized over and over and over again repeatedly, and you are forced to abide by someone's rules or laws or, you know, not look or do something a certain way. Otherwise, you will be punished and reprimanded for it, right? The same way some POWs have experienced it, right? So if you think about that in a context of America and Black people in America, you know, we didn't voluntarily come here for free will. You know, we were taken away from our homeland, taken away from our culture, taken away from our language, taken away from who we were and told that we were nothing, right? And told that we were this subordinate animal property, right? And could do nothing but what this entity told us to do, what this other people that don't look anything like us told us to do. And I feel like racism in and of itself, if you think about what it would feel like to look at yourself every day and discuss, you know, if you could imagine what it's like to feel like 
you can't change who you are, but you but you're told that who you are is wrong. Right. If you can imagine that every day you step out of a door, every day you open your eyes, how you are is a threat to your own existence just for being that. Right. And to go through that, that trauma, that repeated trauma, like I say, it starts from within. But if you have no concept of self, if you have no love for self, if your only will to protect yourself is to simply survive, like you have nothing to strive for, you don't have any sort of bearing on connection, right? That's how we were when we were kept in, in slavery, right? And then you finally find the will, you finally find some understanding of who you are and your possibilities and capabilities, but then you come into another situation to where, you know, people are telling you that you're owed this freedom, you're, you're given this freedom by the very same people who enslaved you. So then you have this complex, complex of owing someone, right? You know, they don't teach you that you also fought for your freedom, that you also, you know, took life by the reins and led yourself into salvation. You know, it's always this narrative of the white savior of, you know, be thankful that Abraham Lincoln freed us, be thankful that, you know, the Union soldiers were there. And it's always this picture of like this white savior coming to raise us from our despair. And so you also now have this, this complex of not only am I not worth anything but then when I do get saved it's by the superior people and so I just feel like racism in and of itself it teaches you to hate yourself right it teaches you to be unloving or to not value yourself and that goes against human nature in and of itself right like as human beings our goal is to survive right our goal is to to not only survive, but to thrive. But if at every point in time you have that threatened, if you're always at this hypervigilant state of always having to look over your shoulder, of always having to prepare for the worst or always having to go through these situations where just walking out of your front door and returning home is a victory, then what other things can you aspire for? What other periods of peace and relaxation can you have, right? And I try to explain it like this, like stress in life is necessary. Stress is what has us you know, waking up every day, you know, going to go get food, you know, going to see family, you know, going to do or live the best life that we can, right? But when stress has a level and when you hit that peak of where it's overly done or where you're overly like stimulated and stressed, it starts to become detrimental to where you start to shut down, right? To where you start to only focus on what's threatening you, to where you only focus on surviving and not thriving. And so I feel like when we've been kept in that constant state, it's been very difficult for us to then ascend higher, right? It's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like when you have the food and the everything else, the shelter and, you know, the safety net, then you can think about like, you know, the education, you can think about the hygiene, you can think about, you know, the other things. And then from there, you can think about the relationships and the love and then you keep going and the peak is like that self-awareness, that self, you know, fulfilling prophecy of you've reached your higher self. We as a people have been always kept down at these lower levels of fighting for basic survival. And, you know, we've done well in that we have been able to ascend in some way to get these other things, but we've never completely been safe. We've never completely been able to not look over our shoulder or to not be prepared for the worst. And I feel like that's the biggest thing with racism is that it's caused us to be very hyper vigilant to the danger that is around us never fully at ease never fully being able to relax or 
truly, you know, just enjoy life as we are here, you know, entirely because we have things like this reminding us that we are not safe. We are not fully seen as people. And so I just feel like, yeah, that's a toll. Like if you're at, if you're at war every day, you know, what else is there? And I feel like that's, that's, a, that's what, you know, the other, the opposing side doesn't realize, like, just like a POW fighting for their freedom. Like, what else is there if I can't, if I can't live? And then sometimes you see it, like, they give up, they might even assimilate to, you know, the other opposing side just to remain safe, you know, or they give up entirely, they just let themselves be a part of this system, right? And then you even see it when they're released, they're completely just they don't know what else to do. I've been treated this way for so long. What else do I do? And they have to go through this whole, you know, reinstating them into civilian life and all this other stuff. It's the same way. Like you see some of us being able to come out of our predicament to ascend above what we were put in our conditions, but it's still that trauma reliving it over and over again. Not just our, our personal experience, but seeing other people like us experience that is also vicarious trauma. So us as a community has been constantly you know, just a constant, like that was, I was all over the place with that, but. <laughs> oh, I mean, that was perfect. I mean, you went, you covered every aspect of it that I feel like needed to be covered. I thought something that was really interesting when we talked about Maslow's, you know, hierarchy, that if you don't have that basic level of, you know, support, safety, all those things, those needs met, you can't really, or not very easily thrive to a higher level. Mm-hmm. I think it makes it, you know, so much more kind of a, I mean, I'm so impressed when people do kind of reach those higher levels in spite of all that. Mm-hmm. And something else you said, um, just, you know, being hypervigilant. It made me think of this video that I saw recently of this kid in his driveway. It couldn't have been more than 10 years old, playing basketball, that, shooting at the hoop. But then he stops. He sees a cop car rolling by. He immediately hides behind, I think it was like a white Jeep that was in his driveway until mm-hmm. the cops pass. And then he goes back to playing basketball like nothing happened, which one is sad that he had to do that in the first place. But then two, it shows that how, I mean, it just shows that he's used to this, that he's conditioned to this, which is, you know, sad in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like, you know, you know, I've seen videos like that where kids will be in the park and see a cop and start crying. Like, and they may not have even experienced any sort of interaction with a cop before, but just from what they've seen and what they've heard and what they know happens that fear that's already in them at five years old, at six years old, right? And it's just, you know, you put it in the context of if you treat someone away for so long, they're going to respond in that way. And so I feel like that's, and that's what we see, you know, when they say, oh, you know, other, other people have come here and, you know, they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they made it. It's like we have this generational trauma that we are carrying, that we are responding to on a constant basis, right? Like my great-grandmother, she's passed on now, but she was born, like she was youngest of 14. She had siblings who were slaves. She knew what slavery was. She was born into slavery. And so it's not, it's not that far removed that, you know, we still have this going on. And when you have these communities where their basic survival is being threatened on a regular basis, whether it be by systemic reasons or individual, what have you, you know, I can't think about, you know, what life is like in college, or I can't think about what the stock market is doing. I can't think about, you know, you know, my next vacation. I've never been on a vacation. I don't know anyone that's been on a vacation. I don't know anybody that's left this country. I'm just trying to put food on the table. 
You know, I'm just trying to make sure that, you know, when I walk past this cop car, I don't get stopped. You know, it's just these simple things that I feel like other people, specifically white people of privilege, you know, they take, they take it, they take it for granted that when they walk out, they can think about themselves, you know, and can see all possibilities happening, whether they're dirt poor, what have you. But even if you're, you know, I was raised middle class, there's still a, a cap put on my mind, like, can I even get there? Because of what society and what, you know, even though I was still surrounded by people who were well off, it's still like, there's still all this pushback, all this trauma that I've even experienced, you know, that you've experienced, that still, we have that hypervigilance, we have that awareness that it might not all go down as we would hope it might. Right. Yeah. And then as far as, you know, mental health, what are some general strategies that people can use to kind of cope with what they're dealing with? So in terms of mental health, like if you're suffering from like certain emotions or feelings or thoughts, uh, the first thing I say is always to acknowledge it, acknowledge that it's happening. You know, a lot of times in just society in general, we're, we're taught to suppress it. We're taught to ignore it and get through. And I feel like we, you know, as human beings often downplay the importance and the biological need for our emotions, for our mental health. You know, that is what, that is our sixth sense. If you want to take it there, like when we see, we use our eyes to see, but it may not always be accurate. We have ears to hear, but it may not always be accurate. Same thing, we have feelings and it may not always be 100% accurate, but it's alerting you to something that's going on. So if you're feeling something, if you're having some sort of response, it is there, your body is chemically telling you that something is wrong, that something is threatening your, your safety, your peace or what have you, something is not right and it needs to change. And so the first thing I would tell anybody is to acknowledge that there's an issue. Right. And, you know, and there's also I feel like, of course, a part of acknowledging it is to explore it. So whether you do that with therapist, whether you do that with, you know, a pastor or somebody who's close to you or whether you do it by yourself, I always suggest that you start with yourself first, like set you out some alone time, some private time and really just I always say pen and paper is best just to write write down everything that you're thinking, everything that you're feeling, because a lot of times we tend to hold back and even judge ourselves when speaking. We tend to omit a lot of things. We tend to douse things down for the sake of not being judged or for the sake of making others feel comfortable. That's why I always say it's best to do that kind of work first with yourself. So that way you can explore and understand what it is that you're feeling or experiencing. And then, you know, just from there, of course, it's self-care. You know, whether that, and it's not just the simple, just the physical, like we were talking about, you know, of course, I love, you know, the Manny petties and, you know, getting our eyebrows done, bath bomb, sure, it's great. But it's also about, you know, looking at your lifestyle, like how much sleep am I getting? You know, do I have time to not only work, but what am I using to fill myself up? Like, what am I reading? What am I consuming? Both physically, mentally, and spiritually? Like, what am I putting into myself? Because that also has an effect on your mental health as well. Who am I surrounding myself with? And sometimes it might just take time to do a complete overhaul on those things to really get it in. And of course, you know, just doing the work of doing things that you enjoy, that brings you happiness, that brings you peace, that like, you know, fills you up. And then of course, if you do need to speak to a professional, then do so. You know, you don't need anybody's permission to have a conversation. 
And, you know, sometimes that's all it takes is a conversation. You know, we are social, social beings by nature. And I feel like having that, that support around you is the right support around you is definitely beneficial. Communication is definitely key. Yeah. That part about self-care reminded me of a quote that I saw not too long ago. Um, And the quote goes like this, that caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. I feel like that quote is just really relevant for the times we're in right now. And that's by- Audrey Lord. yeah. You know what's crazy? Is that, (laughs) this this is the poster I always hang up in my job and it's the exact same quote. Oh, wow. <laughs> when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God. Yes, like, she's speaking facts. Like, <laughs> that is, yeah, without, what you don't realize is that none of this matters if you don't matter. Right. Like, you, and that's what I tell a lot of my parents, that's what I tell myself, like, if I'm not working, then I am not bringing anything to anybody else. You cannot pour from an empty cup. So it's just, you have to get back to yourself. You have to, you know, like you would do your car or your house or your kids. If something was wrong, you would attend to it immediately. So a lot of times, I don't know why we think that we are indestructible and we can just, you know, go into the wheels fall off. But for us, the wheels, when the wheels fall off, it's going to be detrimental. As far as resources, like specific places people can go, whether that's, you know, locally or nationally, what resources or places would you recommend for someone who is struggling with their mental health? Uh, well, I would say check uh, check with your insurance. Um, I know that certain insurances you have to go through like their particular folk, uh, but also there's always hotlines. So there's I, I feel like every state has like a suicide hotline or something that you can call if it ever gets to that point. Um, so it's just simply rule it and utilize it. Um, as far as like therapeutic resources, um, there's so many out here, but you just have to research and look at what you're looking for, especially in this time. If like you're looking for, you know, black therapists or, you know, someone who's in tune with what your specific needs are, whether that be substance abuse or, you know, family therapy. Um, right now I'm working for a, a company's black owned, um, smile therapy services, LLC. I just flip. <laughs> but you know and uh you know there's so many out here and then even on like social media there's so many black therapist forums that you all can follow um that are offer- offering telehealth services right now just due to like covid and everything like that so i follow a lot of like black there literally type in black therapists and like pages will pop up and you know i've been following a lot of new faces and things like that and i think it's just all about you doing just you know, because there's different departments and there's different places that you can go look. Um, but I guess it's just to start the research and start asking. Courtney, I think that was absolutely amazing. I mean, from starting till now, I think you just absolutely crushed it. Oh, value. I hope that, you know, someone is struggling with their mental health, that they can listen to this. And hopefully you can mm-hmm. kind of guide them along the path where they need to go. Um, sure. As we kind of, you know, begin to wrap up here, if our listeners want to follow up with you and contact you, mm-hmm. do you have any social media links? Yes. So um, I'm mainly on Instagram. I do have a Twitter, but I don't really have you on that. So um, you can go to Courtney Marie Presents. So it's Courtney Marie underscore presents on Instagram. And then my email address is C-O-U-R-T dot Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N 91 at gmail.com. Well, Courtney, again, thank you so much for being here. 
And for everyone listening today, stay well. Hey, DMV Wellness community. Thank you so much for listening to the Washington Wellness Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like the content that you heard and would like to continue with us on this wellness journey, then please hit the subscribe button so that you will receive a notification for our next episode.